Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello everyone, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 234 of Forgotten Classics, where I'm going to read Young Goodman Brown by Nathaniel Hawthorne. I said a couple of podcasts ago that this is not very well known, and then I said in the last podcast that this is very well known. I have no idea. I've run into people who said what, and then I've run into people who went, oh yeah, that story. So I guess it just depends, doesn't it? But for me, reading it out loud was, as with Rappuccini's Daughter, very interesting. It opened up layers that I had just glossed over reading it to myself. So I will be curious to see what you think. First, though, I do have a podcast highlight. It is appropriate for Halloween. Well, or for anyone who loves the stories of Edgar Allan Poe. It is the Edgar Allan Poe cast. (laughs) Of course! Inspired by the H.P. Lovecraft literary podcast, and also by a podcast to the curious, which is about the stories of M.R. James, Jonathan and Richard have begun the Edgar Allan Poe cast, where they are going to go through all of Edgar Allan Poe's works. Of course, you know, this is right down my alley. I'm not as crazy about Poe as some people are, but I think through hearing people discuss the stories, it will not only make me go read the stories, which is what these podcasts do, but it gives me a level of depth and appreciation I wouldn't have otherwise. They're only on episode three. They seem to be doing about one a month, which is fine. No need to hurry. Plenty of other podcasts to fill in, right? And I've enjoyed the first two. The third one is coming out soon. So I'll put the link in the show notes if you want to take that up. I would also like to send out a plea to anyone listening What about a Dickens podcast? Come on, I've looked around. Why is there nothing about my man Dickens? Okay, I realize the podcast world is not just about me, but sometimes I just feel like it should be, okay? And maybe a Hawthorne cast. I'm just saying, let's get on this, people. Let's go. Now, enough of begging for what I would like to listen to. Let's get on to what I'm providing for you to listen to. Young Goodman Brown, perhaps forgotten, perhaps famous. It is a very surprising story until you think about the fact that Nathaniel Hawthorne actually had a relative who was a judge in the Salem Witch Trials. I will talk a little bit more about that later, but... Even though I want to take the story on its own merits, because it is fascinating. I also think we can't ignore what each author puts into it from his own experience. I'm not going to analyze this or anything. I will just be talking about that at the end. But I think it gives you an idea of why Hawthorne writes the story the way he does and why the ending is the way it is. And I don't want to say any more. I don't want to spoil it for anybody who, like me, had kind of forgotten the way it ended and thought they knew where it was going and then is surprised, or for people who are just experiencing it for the first time. It is simply fantastic, both on the basis of being a short story and being a horror story. 
this story has inspired a lot of people. And although Hawthorne himself said that it was just one of his short stories, like all of them, he thought all his short stories were about the same, he was always kind of interested to see which ones people liked more than others, evidently. A lot of people have been influenced by this one. Most recently that I read of, Stephen King. So, without further ado, let's take a little walk into the forest in the evening on this night of all nights of the year with young Goodman Brown. And I'll meet you on the other side if we make it out of the forest. Young Goodman Brown by Nathaniel Hawthorne Young Goodman Brown came forth at sunset into the street of Salem Village, but put his head back after crossing the threshold to exchange a parting kiss with his young wife. And Faith, as the wife was aptly named, thrust her own pretty head into the street, letting the wind play with the pink ribbons of her cap while she called to Goodman Brown, "'Dearest heart!' whispered she softly and rather sadly when her lips were close to his ear. Prithee, put off your journey until sunrise and sleep in your own bed tonight. A lone woman is troubled with such dreams and such thoughts that she's afeard of herself sometimes. Pray tarry with me this night, dear husband, of all nights in the year. My love and my faith, replied young Goodman Brown, Of all nights in the year, this one night must I tarry away from thee. My journey, as thou callest it, forth and back again, must needs be done twixt now and sunrise. What, my sweet pretty wife, dost thou doubt me already, and we but three months married? Then God bless you, said Faith with the pink ribbons, and may you find all well when you come back. Amen cried Goodman Brown. Say thy prayers, dear Faith, and go to bed at dusk, and no harm will come to thee. So they parted, and the young man pursued his way, until being about to turn the corner by the meeting-house, he looked back, and saw the head of Faith still peeping after him, with a melancholy air, in spite of her pink ribbons. Poor little Faith, thought he, for his heart smote him. What a wretch I am to leave her on such an errand. She talks of dreams, too. Methought, as she spoke, there was trouble in her face, as if a dream had warned her what work is to be done to-night. But no, no, twould kill her to think it. Well, she's a blessed angel on earth, and after this one night I'll cling to her skirts and follow her to heaven. With this excellent resolve for the future— Goodman Brown felt himself justified in making more haste on his present evil purpose. He had taken a dreary road, darkened by all the gloomiest trees of the forest, which barely stood aside to let the narrow path creep through and closed immediately behind. It was all as lonely as could be, and there is this peculiarity in such a solitude— that the traveller knows not who may be concealed by the innumerable trunks and the thick boughs overhead, so that with lonely footsteps he may yet be passing through an unseen multitude. "'There may be a devilish Indian behind every tree,' said Goodman Brown to himself, and he glanced fearfully behind him as he added, "'What if the devil himself should be at my very elbow?' 
His head being turned back, he passed a crook of the road, and looking forward again, beheld the figure of a man, in grave and decent attire, seated at the foot of an old tree. He arose at Goodman Brown's approach, and walked onward side by side with him. "'You are late, Goodman Brown,' said he. "'The clock of the Old South was striking as I came through Boston, and that is full fifteen minutes agone.' "'Faith kept me back a while,' replied the young man with a tremor in his voice, caused by the sudden appearance of his companion, though not wholly unexpected. It was now deep dusk in the forest, and deepest in that part of it where these two were journeying. As nearly as could be discerned, the second traveller was about fifty years old, apparently in the same rank of life as Goodman Brown, and bearing a considerable resemblance to him— though perhaps more in expression than features. Still, they might have been taken for father and son. And yet, though the elder person was as simply clad as the younger, and as simple in manner, too, he had an indescribable air of one who knew the world, and would not have felt abashed at the governor's dinner-table, or in King William's court, were it possible that his affairs should call him thither. But the only thing about him that could be fixed upon as remarkable was his staff, which bore the likeness of a great black snake so curiously wrought that it might almost be seen to twist and wriggle itself like a living serpent. This, of course, must have been an ocular deception, assisted by the uncertain light. "'Come, Goodman Brown,' cried his fellow-traveller. "'This is a dull pace for the beginning of a journey. Take my staff if you are so weary. "'Friend,' said the other, exchanging his slow pace for a full stop. Having kept covenant by meeting thee here, it is my purpose now to return whence I came. I have scruples touching the matter thou wotst of. Sayest thou so? replied he of the serpent, smiling apart. Let us walk on, nevertheless. Reasoning as we go, and if I convince thee not, thou shalt turn back. We are but a little way in the forest yet. Too far, too far, exclaimed the goodman, unconsciously resuming his walk. My father never went into the woods on such an errand, nor his father before him. We have been a race of honest men and good Christians since the days of the martyrs. And shall I be the first of the name of Brown that ever took this path and kept such company, thou wouldst say? "'observed the elder person, interrupting his pause. "'Well said, Goodman Brown. "'I have been as well acquainted with your family "'as with ever a one among the Puritans, "'and that's no trifle to say. "'I helped your grandfather, the constable, "'when he lashed the Quaker woman "'so smartly through the streets of Salem. "'And it was I that brought your father "'a pitch-pine knot kindled at my own hearth, to set fire to an Indian village in King Philip's war. <laughs> they were my good friends both, and many a pleasant walk have we had along this path, and returned merrily after midnight. I would fain be friends with you for their sake. If it be as thou sayest, replied Goodman Brown, I marvel they never spoke of these matters, or verily I marvel not, seeing that the least rumor of the sort would have driven them from New England. We are a people of prayer and good works to boot, and abide no such wickedness. 
"'Wickedness or not,' said the traveller with the twisted staff, "'I have a very general acquaintance here in New England. "'The deacons of many a church have drunk the communion wine with me. "'The selectmen of divers towns make me their chairman, "'and a majority of the great and general court "'are from supporters of my interest. "'The governor and I, too, but these are state secrets.' "'Can this be so?' cried Goodman Brown, with a stare of amazement at his undisturbed companion. "'How be it I have nothing to do with the governor and council. They have their own ways, and are no rule for a simple husbandman like me. But were I to go on with thee, how should I meet the eye of that good old man our minister at Salem Village? Oh, his voice would make me tremble both Sabbath day and lecture day.' Thus far, the elder traveller had listened with due gravity, but now he burst into a fit of irrepressible mirth, shaking himself so violently that his snake-like staff actually seemed to wriggle in sympathy. Ha, ha, ha! cried he again and again, then composing himself. Well, go on, Goodman Brown, go on, but pray thee don't kill me with laughing. "'Well, then, to end the matter at once,' said Goodman Brown, considerably nettled. "'There is my wife, Faith. It would break her dear little heart, and I'd rather break my own.' "'Nay, if that be the case,' answered the other. "'Even go thy ways, Goodman Brown. I would not for twenty old women like the one hobbling before us that Faith should come to any harm.' As he spoke, he pointed his staff at a female figure on the path in whom Goodman Brown recognized a very pious and exemplary dame who had taught him his catechism in youth and was still his moral and spiritual adviser, jointly with the minister and Deacon Gookin. A marvel, truly, that Goody Cloys should be so far in the wilderness at nightfall, said he, but with your leave, friend, I shall take a cut through the woods until we have left this Christian woman behind. Being a stranger to you, she might ask whom I was consorting with and whither I was going. Be it so, said his fellow traveller, betake you to the woods and let me keep the path. Accordingly, the young man turned aside, but took care to watch his companion, who advanced softly along the road until he had come within a staff's length of the old dame. She, meanwhile, was making the best of her way with singular speed for so aged a woman, and mumbling some indistinct words, a prayer, doubtless, as she went. The traveller put forth his staff and touched her withered neck with what seemed the serpent's tail. "'The devil!' screamed the pious old lady. "'Then Goody Cloys knows her old friend,' observed the traveller, confronting her and leaning on his writhing stick. "'Ah, forsooth, and is it your worship indeed?' cried the old dame. "'Yea, truly it is, and in the very image of my old gossip, Goodman Brown, the grandfather of the silly fellow that now is. But would your worship believe it? My broomstick hath strangely disappeared, stolen, as I suspect, by that unhanged witch Goody Cory, and that, too, when I was all anointed with the juice of smallage and sinkfoil and wolfsbane.' "'Mingled with fine wheat and the fat of a newborn babe,' said the shape of old Goodman Brown. "'Ha-ha! <laughs> your worship knows the recipe,' 
cried the old lady, cackling aloud. So, as I was saying, being all ready for the meeting and no horse to ride on, I made up my mind to foot it, for they tell me there's a nice young man to be taken into communion tonight. But now your good worship will lend me your arm, and we shall be there in a twinkling. That can hardly be, answered her friend. I may not spare you my arm, goody cloys, but here is my staff, if you will. So saying, he threw it down at her feet, where perhaps it assumed life, being one of the rods which its owner had formerly lent to Egyptian magi. Of this fact, however, Goodman Brown could not take cognizance. He had cast up his eyes in astonishment, and looking down again, beheld neither Goody Cloys nor the serpentine staff, but his fellow traveller alone, who waited for him as calmly as if nothing had happened. "'That old woman taught me my catechism,' said the young man, and there was a world of meaning in this simple comment." They continued to walk onward, while the elder traveller exhorted his companion to make good speed and persevere in the path, discoursing so aptly that his arguments seemed rather to spring up in the bosom of his auditor than to be suggested by himself. As they went, he plucked a branch of maple to serve for a walking-stick, and began to strip it of the twigs and little boughs which were wet with evening dew. The moment his fingers touched them, they became strangely withered and dried up as with a week's sunshine. Thus the pair proceeded at a good free pace, until suddenly in a gloomy hollow of the road, Goodman Brown sat himself down on the stump of a tree and refused to go any farther. Friend, said he stubbornly, my mind is made up. Not another step will I budge on this errand. What if a wretched old woman do choose to go to the devil when I thought she was going to heaven? Is that any reason why I should quit my dear faith and go after her? You will think better of this by and by, said his acquaintance composedly. Sit here and rest yourself a while, and when you feel like moving again, here's my staff to help you along. Without more words, he threw his companion the maple stick and was as speedily out of sight as if he had vanished into the deepening gloom. The young man sat a few moments by the roadside, applauding himself greatly, and thinking with how clear a conscience he should meet the minister in his morning walk, nor shrink from the eye of good old Deacon Gookin. And what calm sleep would be his that very night, which was to have been spent so wickedly, but pure and sweetly now, in the arms of faith." Amidst these pleasant and praiseworthy meditations, Goodman Brown heard the tramp of horses along the road, and deemed it advisable to conceal himself within the verge of the forest, conscious of the guilty purpose that had brought him thither, though now so happily turned from it. On came the hoof-tramps and voices of the riders, two grave old voices conversing soberly as they drew near. These mingled sounds appeared to pass along the road within a few yards of the young man's hiding-place, but owing, doubtless, to the depth of the gloom at that particular spot, neither the travellers nor their steeds were visible. Though their figures brushed the small boughs by the wayside, it could not be seen that they intercepted, even for a moment, the faint gleam from the strip of bright sky, athwart which they must have passed. Goodman Brown alternately crouched and stood on tiptoe, 
pulling aside the branches and thrusting forth his head as far as he durst, without discerning so much as a shadow. It vexed him the more, because he could have sworn, were such a thing possible, that he recognized the voices of the minister and deacon Gookin, jogging quietly along as they were wont to do, when bound to some ordination or ecclesiastical council, while yet within hearing one of the riders stopped to pluck a switch. "'Of the two, reverend sir,' said a voice like the deacon's, "'I had rather miss an ordination dinner than tonight's meeting. "'They tell me that some of our community are to be here from Falmouth and beyond, "'and others from Connecticut and Rhode Island, "'besides several of the Indian powwows, "'who after their fashion know almost as much deviltry as the best of us. "'Moreover, there is a goodly young woman to be taken into communion.' "'Mighty well, Deacon Gokin,' replied the solemn old tones of the minister. "'Spur up, or we shall be late. Nothing can be done, you know, until I get on the ground.' The hoofs clattered again, and the voices talking so strangely in the empty air passed on through the forest, where no church had been gathered nor solitary Christian prayed. Whither, then, could these holy men be journeying so deep into the heathen wilderness? Young Goodman Brown caught hold of a tree for support, being ready to sink down on the ground, faint and overburdened with the heavy sickness of his heart. He looked up at the sky, doubting whether there really was a heaven above him. Yet there was the blue arch and the stars brightening in it. With heaven above and faith below, I will yet stand firm against the devil, cried Goodman Brown. While he still gazed upward into the deep arch of the firmament and had lifted his hands to pray, a cloud, though no wind was stirring, hurried across the zenith and hid the brightening stars. The blue sky was still visible, except directly overhead, where this black mass of cloud was sweeping swiftly northward. Aloft in the air, as if from the depths of the cloud, came a confused and doubtful sound of voices. Once the listener fancied that he could distinguish the accent of townspeople of his own, men and women, both pious and ungodly, many of whom he had met at the communion table, and had seen others rioting at the tavern. The next moment, so indistinct were the sounds, he doubted whether he had heard aught but the murmur of the old forest, whispering without a wind. Then came the stronger swell of those familiar tones heard daily in the sunshine at Salem Village, but never until now from a cloud of night. There was one voice, of a young woman uttering lamentations, yet with an uncertain sorrow and entreating for some favor, which perhaps it would grieve her to obtain, and all the unseen multitude, both saints and sinners, seemed to encourage her onward. Faith! shouted Goodman Brown in a voice of agony and desperation, and the echoes of the forest mocked him, crying, Faith! Faith! as if bewildered wretches were seeking her, all through the wilderness. The cry of grief, rage, and terror was yet piercing the night when the unhappy husband held his breath for a response. There was a scream, drowned immediately in a louder murmur of voices fading into far-off laughter as the dark cloud swept away, leaving the clear and silent sky above Goodman Brown. But something fluttered lightly down through the air and caught on the branch of a tree. 
the young man seized it and beheld a pink ribbon. My faith is gone, cried he after one stupefied moment. There is no good on earth and sin is but a name. Come, devil, for to thee is this world given. And maddened with despair, so that he laughed loud and long, did Goodman Brown grasp his staff and set forth again at such a rate that he seemed to fly along the forest path rather than to walk or run. The road grew wilder and drearier and more faintly traced and vanished at length, leaving him in the heart of the dark wilderness, still rushing onward with the instinct that guides mortal man to evil. The whole forest was peopled with frightful sounds, the creaking of the trees, the howling of wild beasts, and the yell of Indians, while sometimes the wind tolled like a distant church bell, and sometimes gave a broad roar around the traveler as if all nature were laughing him to scorn. But he was himself the chief horror of the scene, and shrank not from its other horrors. Ha, 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 roared Goodman Brown when the wind laughed at him. Let us hear which will laugh the loudest. Think not to frighten me with your deviltry. Come witch, come wizard, come Indian powwow, come devil himself, and here comes Goodman Brown. You may as well fear him as he fear you. In truth, all through the haunted forest, there could be nothing more frightful than the figure of Goodman Brown. On he flew among the black pines, brandishing his staff with frenzied gestures, now giving vent to an inspiration of horrid blasphemy, and now shouting forth such laughter as set all the echoes of the forest laughing like demons around him. The fiend in his own shape is less hideous than when he rages in the breast of man. Thus sped the demoniac on his course, until quivering among the trees he saw a red light before him, as when the felled trunks and branches of a clearing have been set on fire, and throw up their lurid blaze against the sky at the hour of midnight. He paused in a lull of the tempest that had driven him onward, and heard the swell of what seemed a hymn, rolling solemnly from a distance with the weight of many voices. He knew the tune. It was a familiar one in the choir of the village meeting-house. The verse died heavily away, and was lengthened by a chorus, not of human voices, but of all the sounds of the benighted wilderness pealing in awful harmony together. Goodman Brown cried out, and his cry was lost to his own ear by its unison with the cry of the desert. In the interval of silence he stole forward, until the light glared full upon his eyes. At one extremity of an open space hemmed in by the dark wall of the forest arose a rock, bearing some rude natural resemblance either to an altar or a pulpit, and surrounded by four blazing pines, their tops aflame, their stems untouched, like candles at an evening meeting. The mass of foliage that had overgrown the summit of the rock was all on fire, blazing high into the night and fitfully illuminating the whole field. Each pendant twig and leafy festoon was in a blaze. As the red light arose and fell, a numerous congregation alternately shone forth, then disappeared in shadow, and again grew, as it were, out of the darkness, peopling the heart of the solitary woods at once. "'A grave and dark-clad company,' quoth Goodman Brown. "'In truth, they were such.' 
Among them, quivering to and fro between gloom and splendor, appeared faces that would be seen next day at the council board of the province, and others which, Sabbath after Sabbath, looked devoutly heavenward, and benignantly over the crowded pews from the holiest pulpits in the land. Some affirm that the lady of the governor was there. At least there were high dames well known to her, and wives of honored husbands, and widows a great multitude, and ancient maidens all of excellent repute, and fair young girls who trembled lest their mothers should espy them. Either the sudden gleams of light flashing over the obscure field bedazzled Goodman Brown, or he recognized a score of the church members of Salem Village, famous for their special sanctity. Good old Deacon Gookin had arrived, and waited at the skirts of that venerable saint, his reverend pastor. But irreverently consorting with these grave, reputable, and pious people, these elders of the church, these chaste dames and dewy virgins, there were men of dissolute lives and women of spotted fame, wretches given over to all mean and filthy vice and suspected even of horrid crimes. It was strange to see that the good shrank not from the wicked, nor were the sinners abashed by the saints. Scattered also among their pale-faced enemies were the Indian priests, or powwows, who had often scared their native forest with more hideous incantations than any known to English witchcraft. But where is faith? thought Goodman Brown, and as hope came into his heart, he trembled. Another verse of the hymn arose, a slow and mournful strain, such as the pious love, but joined to words which expressed all that our nature can conceive of sin, and darkly hinted at far more. Unfathomable to mere mortals is the lore of fiends. Verse after verse was sung, and still the chorus of the desert swelled between like the deepest tone of a mighty organ. And with the final peal of that dreadful anthem, there came a sound, as if the roaring wind, the rushing streams, the howling beasts, and every other voice of the unconverted wilderness were mingling and according with the voice of guilty man in homage to the prince of all. The four blazing pines threw up a loftier flame, and obscurely discovered shapes and visages of horror on the smoke wreaths above the impious assembly. At the same moment, the fire on the rock shot redly forth, and formed a glowing arch above its base where now appeared a figure. With reverence be it spoken, the figure bore no slight similitude both in garb and manner to some grave divine of the New England churches. "'Bring forth the converts!' cried a voice that echoed through the field and rolled into the forest. At the word, Goodman Brown stepped forth from the shadow of the trees and approached the congregation, with whom he felt a loathful brotherhood by the sympathy of all that was wicked in his heart. He could have well-nigh sworn that the shape of his own dead father beckoned him to advance, looking downward from a smoke-wreath, while a woman with dim features of despair threw out her hand to warn him back. Was it his mother? But he had no power to retreat one step, nor to resist, even in thought, when the minister and good old deacon Gookin seized his arms and led him to the blazing rock. Thither came also the slender form of a veiled female, 
led between Goody Cloys, that pious teacher of the Catechism, and Martha Carrier, who had received the devil's promise to be queen of hell. A rampant hag was she, and there stood the proselytes, beneath the canopy of fire. "'Welcome, my children,' said the dark figure, "'to the communion of your race. "'Ye have found thus young your nature and your destiny. "'My children, look behind you.' "'They turned, and flashing forth, as it were, "'in a sheet of flame, the fiend-worshippers were seen. "'The smile of welcome gleamed darkly on every visage. "'There,' resumed the sable form, are all whom ye have reverenced from youth. Ye deemed them holier than yourselves, and shrank from your own sin, contrasting it with their lives of righteousness and peaceful aspirations heavenward. Yet here they all are in my worshipping assembly. This night it shall be granted you to know their secret deeds." How hoary-bearded elders of the church have whispered wanton words to the young maids of their households. How many a woman, eager for the widow's weeds, has given her husband a drink at bedtime and let him sleep his last sleep in her bosom. How beardless youths have made haste to inherit their father's wealth, and how fair damsels, blush not, sweet ones, have dug little graves in the garden and bidden me, the sole guest, to an infant's funeral. By the sympathy of your human hearts for sin, ye shall scent out all the places, whether in church, bedchamber, street, field, or forest, where crime has been committed, and shall exult to behold the whole earth one stain of guilt, one mighty blood spot, far more than this. It shall be yours to penetrate in every bosom the deep mystery of sin, the fountain of all wicked arts, and, which inexhaustibly supplies more evil impulses than human power, than my power at its utmost can make manifest in deeds. And now, my children, look upon one another. They did so, and by the blaze of the hell-kindled torches the wretched man beheld his faith, and the wife her husband, trembling before that unhallowed altar. "'Lo, there ye stand, my children,' said the figure in a deep and solemn tone, almost sad with its despairing awfulness, as if his once angelic nature could yet mourn for our miserable race. "'Depending upon one another's hearts,' Ye had still hoped that virtue were not all a dream. Now are ye undeceived. Evil is the nature of mankind. Evil must be your only happiness. Welcome again, my children, to the communion of your race. Welcome, repeated the fiend worshippers in one cry of despair and triumph. And there they stood the only pair, as it seemed, who were yet hesitating on the verge of wickedness in this dark world. A basin was hollowed naturally in the rock. Did it contain water, reddened by the lurid light, or was it blood, or perchance a liquid flame? Herein did the shape of evil 
dip his hand and prepare to lay the mark of baptism upon their foreheads that they might be partakers of the mystery of sin, more conscious of the secret guilt of others, both in deed and thought, than they could now be of their own. The husband cast one look at his pale wife and faith at him. What polluted wretches would the next glance show them to each other, shuddering alike at what they disclosed and what they saw? Faith, faith, cried the husband. Look up to heaven and resist the wicked one. Whether faith obeyed, he knew not. Hardly had he spoken when he found himself amid calm night and solitude, listening to a roar of the wind which died heavily away through the forest. He staggered against the rock and felt it chill and damp, while a hanging twig that had been all on fire besprinkled his cheek with the coldest dew. The next morning young Goodman Brown came slowly into the street of Salem Village, staring around him like a bewildered man. The good old minister was taking a walk along the graveyard to get an appetite for breakfast and meditate his sermon, and bestowed a blessing as he passed on Goodman Brown. He shrank from the venerable saint as if to avoid an anathema. Old Deacon Gookin was at domestic worship, and the holy words of his prayer were heard through the open window. "'What God doth the wizard pray to?' quoth Goodman Brown." Goody Cloys, that excellent old Christian, stood in the early sunshine at her own lattice, catechizing a little girl who had brought her a pint of morning milk. Goodman Brown snatched away the child as if from the grasp of the fiend himself. Turning the corner by the meeting-house, he spied the head of faith with the pink ribbons, gazing anxiously forth and bursting into such joy at the sight of him that she skipped along the street and almost kissed her husband before the whole village. But Goodman Brown looked sternly and sadly into her face and passed on without a greeting. Had Goodman Brown fallen asleep in the forest and only dreamed a wild dream of a witch-meeting? Be it so, if you will. But alas... It was a dream of evil omen for young Goodman Brown. A stern, a sad, a darkly meditative, a distrustful, if not a desperate man, did he become from the night of that fearful dream. On the Sabbath day, when the congregation were singing a holy psalm, he could not listen, because an anthem of sin rushed loudly upon his ear and drowned all the blessed strain. When the minister spoke from the pulpit with power and fervid eloquence and with his hand on the open Bible of the sacred truths of our religion and of saint-like lives and triumphant deaths and of future bliss or misery unutterable, then did Goodman Brown turn pale, dreading lest the roof should thunder down upon the gray blasphemer and his hearers. Often, awaking suddenly at midnight, he shrank from the bosom of faith, and at morning or eventide, when the family knelt down at prayer, he scowled and muttered to himself and gazed sternly at his wife and turned away. And when he had lived long and was born to his grave, a hoary corpse followed by faith, an aged woman, and children and grandchildren, a goodly procession besides neighbors, not a few, they carved no hopeful verse upon his tombstone for his dying hour was gloom.
Wow. We really don't know what to think after that story, do we? But a few things did occur to me, so I'm going to just throw these out there. And although I did look around a little, scholars are divided on a lot of things about this story. So I think we just kind of have to look at the story for what it is and what Hawthorne would have felt his readers knew at the time. I don't know. This is just where I'm going with this stuff. So I'm just going to tell you a few things I noticed. One is we don't really know why he's going into the woods on this night of all nights. We don't even know what that is. My assumption is it's Halloween, All Hallows Eve, because that's a very scary night of the year when demons are supposed to be abroad because it is the day before All Saints Day, the holiest day of the year. Young Goodman Brown does live in Salem Village, and Hawthorne's great-great-grandfather, John Haythorne, H-A-T-H-O-R-N-E, was a judge at the Salem Witch Trials. So some people look at this and they say, oh, he was plagued with guilt, and so he wrote this to vindicate his grandfather. Others say, no, he was doing it to question established thought. Now, to me, it seems more of that sort of thing, because you can look at this two ways. One is the big question, right? Did he really experience this or did he not? I was listening to this story as I proofed it and thinking over some of the things that occurred to me while I was reading it. And the main one to me was that pink ribbon that flutters down from above. Faith has her pink ribbons, as far as we can tell, when he meets her again at the end. And for me, that kind of speaks to a theme that I noticed in the story, which is that desert or wilderness gets mentioned three different times. Well, Hawthorne would have known, and anybody of that time would have known, being good God-fearing Christians, or at least conversant in the Bible, as any educated person would have been. Christ was tempted in the desert three times by the devil. Now, if you look at it, this is where I may be stretching it. Young Goodman Brown is tested three times in the wilderness. First of all, this guy he meets looks like his father and grandfather. He casts doubt on them just through his story. Now, if he is indeed the prince of this world, as is mentioned toward the end of the story, well, that is also a biblical reference. The prince of the world is Satan. Satan is a liar. You cannot trust anything he says. That's a clear theme throughout the Bible from the beginning to the end. So whatever he says, young Goodman Brown shouldn't believe him. And young Goodman Brown just seems to swallow it hook, line, and sinker. What? No, that's not so. Oh my gosh, I overheard a couple of people, I think, and I'm just going to believe it. Well, the thing is, is if you're looking at this with the mentions of the desert, with Christ in the wilderness, all this stuff, none of that stuff necessarily happened to Christ that we're told about. It could have all just been temptations that were thrown out there. So that's the way it could have been for young Goodman Brown. The second temptation to me is hearing his friends, hearing Goody Cloys out there, 
hearing the deacon and the preacher out there and going, oh my gosh, here, here they are again. And again, he swallows it. And then, of course, the final one is faith, which, of course, Nathaniel Hawthorne didn't pick the name faith for no reason. So every time he mentions faith, you're almost kind of smiling going, oh, is it the wife or is it the faith? It's always capitalized. So he's ostensibly talking about the wife. But yet, on the other hand, if you look at a lot of those sentences, he could definitely be talking about his faith. Now, the big thing is at the end, he says, no, look to heaven. So he is doing the ultimate resistance, whether it's for real or whether it's um, a more spiritual, internal temptation. But does he really resist? Because at the end of the story, when he goes back, we see it has tainted him. He can't trust anyone. It sours him. He can't let it go. He has believed the accusations, the stories that that man in the woods told him. Now, if I think about that and I think about the Salem witch trials, let me think. I believe it's a condemnation of that sort of thing, especially when you consider the end of the story. But he brilliantly, Nathaniel Hawthorne meaning, left this so open that you can take it in a lot of different directions. And I think it's really brilliant because it works as a scary story. And it also works as, would it be a parable? A story of the dark night of the soul and what happens if you resist, if you don't resist, when you're tempted, when all these things occur to you. So... Anyway, it seems appropriate for Halloween to me, and Halloween will be in a couple of days, if I get this out when I hope. So, enjoy it. Now, in other news, I had been mentioning before that I was planning on reading some short stories, and that is going to happen. I also had a reader request, and this is another one that was made, oh gosh, It might be two years ago. Sarah, I'm so sorry. To read The Cricket on the Hearth by Charles Dickens. Now, it does seem a little early for a Christmas story. But I was looking around because I thought I remembered that there was a good reading on LibriVox, which Sarah very nicely would rather hear me read. But It's by Ruth Golding. No one reads better than Ruth Golding. I would be doing you a disservice if I was reading it and didn't give you the chance to listen. So I may go ahead and play her audio on here as episodes or maybe as a Christmas special. Now that I think about it. Oh, I have to think this over. Because it's four chapters, or chirps as they're called, But she has divided it into, I believe it's eight or nine different sections. So they're about half an hour, 25 minutes long. And that to me seems less intimidating when you see that pop up in your feed. If anyone has any comments on this, any thoughts on what they'd like to see, please do let me know. But I'll either need to start it very soon so that we have time for the eight weeks or let it go a little bit after Christmas, which you know, works for me because you've got the 12 days of Christmas. So that gives you a couple weeks or so afterward. Although, as I say, I may do it as a Christmas special, in which case I can just drop in short stories here and there as regular episodes. Anyway, feedback appreciated.
let me know what you think about that. Other than that, I am in my very busy time of year, although luckily it's not quite as busy as usual yet. We haven't hit the really hot time for that catalog I always work on. And that really cuts into my reading time, it cuts into my listening time, and you would think it cuts into my podcasting time, but guess what? I fell prey to temptation myself. Oh, young Goodman Brown, how I relate to you. Because Jesse from SFF Audio asked me if I would like to be on a podcast talking about podcasts. Well, okay, who's more addicted to podcasts than me? Nobody except maybe Jesse. And there's going to be another guest who I did not stop to look up his name. I will tell you later. So that will be in a week or two. And then I'm also going to be talking about Frankenstein with Scott from A Good Story is Hard to Find and Jesse on SFF Audio. And in the meantime, on A Good Story is Hard to Find, Scott and I are going to be talking about The Haunting of Hill House, and that will be out this week. Oh my gosh, talk about scary. That's a haunted house that Stephen King would have been proud to write about in The Shining. I love The Shining, don't get me wrong, one of my favorite books, but this is just so well-written, so subtly done, so terrifying at the same time. Oh, man. If you have not read that book, read it. It's so great. And I guess that's all. It did seem like more podcasts than that when I was thinking about it. Maybe because they're all coming up in the next few weeks. And also, in a few weeks, we'll have the November chapter of Mrs. Appleyard's Year. So we've got all kinds of good stuff going on. Finally, thank you for listening. I wouldn't be reading this out loud. I certainly wouldn't have had as much fun thinking about young Goodman Brown. I didn't notice all that stuff in there when I just read it to myself a few years ago. You guys, you're the best. You keep coming back to listen and making me read things out loud, and I'm loving it. So I hope you're loving it too. I hope you have a great week, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.